Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from WandaVision director Matt Shackman about helming the first Marvel Cinematic Universe TV series for Disney+. And director Deborah Riley Draper, plus Trailblazer Studios Senior Vice President of Development Ashley DiTonto on own documentary The Legacy of Black Wall Street. With credits including Mad Men and Game of Thrones, director Matt Shackman was entrusted with helming Marvel Studios' first television entry into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Debuting on Disney Plus earlier this year, WandaVision picked up the story of characters Wanda and Vision in the wake of Avengers Endgame, in a series that played with genre conventions, paid homage to classic comedies and still found room to include Marvel's trademark action set pieces. Speaking ahead of his appearance at the Banff World Media Festival this week, Shackman spoke to Michael Pickard about how he was involved in developing the series, working with stars Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany, and how the rise of streaming is changing the creative landscape. How do you go from WandaVision? What's what's next for you? You must be looking forward to a rest, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, been, it's been good to have a few months to remind my family who I am. But I'm not exactly sure what's next for me. I'm just kind of trying to figure that out right now uh, in terms of the directing world. Um, but I, I have my my day job running the Geffen Playhouse in Los Angeles where I'm the artistic director. So we're gearing up for reopening to the public this fall, which is really exciting. So that takes up a lot of time as well. And I mean, how do you reflect on, on the success of the show? Because uh, Kevin Feige was being asked again the other day about a possible second season. And and he's a man of few carefully chosen words and, and there's no committal. But obviously, I, I imagine we'll, we'll see the stories play out uh, on the big screen, perhaps. But, you know, how do you reflect on just, you know, what a huge success it's been, not just for Marvel, but for Disney Plus as their first sort of MCU series? It was an incredible honor to get to go first. And, uh, you know, it came out at a time where I think the world was really looking for something that they could all gather around and watch, which we never expected that the show would come out in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. Who could have predicted that? But a show that was a meditation about grief and loss and ultimately about love um, and about family seemed to be well-timed for a world that was, you know, wrestling with issues of grief and loss as well. So uh, the timing of it ended up being, you know, interesting and surprising, but I'm really proud of the show and proud of the, the cast and the crew and the incredible artistic collaborators that I had. And it was a, it was a wonderful two years bringing it to life. Yeah. So, so it's, you, you spent two years on the project, did you, from kind of start to, to finish? I mean, what, what point yeah. in, um, are you called in to Marvel and, and asked to sort of helm the series is, is, has there been a lot of work already in in the script writing process and and obviously there's an idea of what they want to do with the show at what point are you then brought in to kind of offer your opinion on the visual side of things yeah yeah pretty early on you know it, it was an idea that i think you know jack schaefer had been on for a few months before i officially started and she had assembled a team of writers an incredible writers room and they were busy dreaming about what the series could be and building off of the original concept that um was kevin feige's this idea of a of taking Wanda and Vision, putting them in a suburban setting and setting it in the world of sitcoms. 
And so Jack and her team were, were busy fleshing that out when I joined up. And then, you know, that was a terrific partnership where so much storytelling happens through the planning of these set pieces. And as you start to imagine what the world will be, and, and a lot of that stuff ends up then making its way back into the script. So it was definitely a, a wonderful conversation and collaboration that went on for several years as we sort of shaped this thing together. So um, yeah, I started, you know, I started a few months after her and then quickly assembled a, a team of incredible designers and cinematographer and editors and, and that crew, which I worked very closely with over the next chunk of time. I mean, what is it about, I guess, Wanda and, and Vision specifically as, as characters, you know, aside from the other characters that they regularly star alongside? I mean, what is it about those two, you think, in particular, that meant they were ripe for a, a series of their own and, you know, meant that we enjoyed their company for nine episodes, you know, at, at this stage in their arcs, I guess, through the MCU? They have been, as you've said, in these films with so many other vibrant and amazing characters and they've had I think just about 10 minutes of screen time together um, to establish who they are and this relationship and somehow because of the magic of those characters the writing but maybe most of all the chemistry between Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany they managed to make an indelible mark in that 10 minutes and that we were rooting for them so that when Vision dies in Infinity War our hearts are broken and we wonder what will happen how she will pick up the pieces of that and so I, I think that was really the building blocks, you know, the, the sort of the, the question of how can we sort of go deeper into these characters, they have a rich comic book history separately and together, but to, you know, to really spend six hours, nine episodes focusing on their love story, which is really one of the you know most important love stories in the MCU and in the Marvel comic canon. Um, and to have two amazing actors like, like Paul and Lizzie to bring those characters to life, I think it was just a sort of undeniably wonderful idea to explore that and you know i guess when you come into a show like this it's not a fresh show you're not directing the pilot of something that no one has ever seen before you're coming into a world that you know beyond the, the movies has such a rich comic book history so i'm uh, you know i imagine some sort of underground cave where there are people with um you know notes on the wall for easter eggs and and things that that they really want to to enrich in the series with i mean is that you know how do you come into that world do you have to do your own research about things do you know that the audience should know or that fun things that you would like as a nod to maybe the comics you know what's that process like so I imagine there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of research involved in putting those things in yeah I mean the great thing about this is that it was a, a really original concept it felt like not just one pilot it felt like nine pilots you know because every episode it was beginning a whole new world um, we were building the story of WandaVision a television show that Wanda was creating based on the DNA of the show she loved growing up and what's so special about the show is that we had this chance to explore stylistically and do some really experimental stuff, but all that stuff works because you have this, this powerful spine, this love story, and this idea of how you can overcome loss. So the question of, can you really? So that's really what held it all together. So my job really as a director was mostly focused on storytelling, how best to tell that story peppering Easter eggs throughout, you know, definitely was something that that happened. Sometimes that was the writer, sometimes that, sometimes that was me, sometimes that was an actor, sometimes uh, that would be the prop designer who was having fun putting a label on a wine bottle that sent the world crazy, you know, because it said House of M or something like House of M. So those things show up for lots of different ways and reasons, but always the goal, chief, the chief goal is really just to tell the best story possible. And yeah, we are building on these amazing stories that have existed. And that's what's super fun is, yeah, it's, 
it's out there. You know, there are all these wonderful comic book runs that, that we looked at and studied carefully. But what I've loved about the Marvel Studios approach to the MCU is that they aren't just adapting one comic book. They look at as the they look at it as the opportunity to create a new comic book run that builds on what's come before, has come before, and launch something new. So we kind of osmosed all that was the stuff that was out there and then tried to make something new that we felt was tailored to this moment. And, and of course, um, you mentioned like you know creating the, the world of the show, and and I guess for for three episodes at least, we weren't really sure what we were watching. We were watching these sort of 1950s, 60s, 70s sitcoms and you know that were beautifully mimicking those sitcoms but I mean they were carried off beautifully and, and it was only until I think episode four where we started to see behind the curtain and, and see what was slowly going on uh, that obviously then built towards the end of the show so I mean at what point did you come up with creating these sitcom ideas and and what was that for like you as a director to have to you know copy and, and recreate these classic sitcoms that I guess particularly American viewers will, will know so well? I loved television. I love television history. Kevin Feige does too, Jack Schaefer. We all had the best time having a professional excuse to watch lots of old television episodes. So this was the best job ever. But I wanted to approach it with authenticity. I didn't want people to think that we were spoofing old television shows or even just mimicking them. The goal was really that this was Wanda's show, you know, and that ultimately it's revealed that this is Wanda's way of dealing with her trauma. And she has the power of creation. She's an incredibly powerful witch. And so the show that we were creating had to have so much integrity. And to that end, we no detail was too small. So we looked at old prints of episodes that had been shot of Bewitched and I Dream of Genie. We wanted to kind of see what the original product looked like because we only know them through syndication, which means they're copies of copies of copies of copies of the original print. So we wanted to understand really what did Brady Bunch look like? What were the you know sort of palette colors involved in that show? And, and we studied performance. We studied how comedy changed through the eras. We studied how people walked and talked and moved and clothing and however we could accurately with authenticity recreate a given era while making it our own was how we kind of approached things. So the spirit of Dick Van Dyke and I Love Lucy and that performative quality of putting on a play in front of an audience changes to Bewitched, which is a single camera show that was shot more like a movie. And, you know, the lighting styles changed, the intimacy of it, the performance, what was funny, the laugh track, instead of a real audience laughing, all of a sudden it's artificial. All of those things were incredibly important for us so that we felt like we were, you know, bringing those generations of television to life in a true way. And, and I guess when you're working within that kind of framework, were you then able to bring your own kind of style to the show? Or is that something that you were able to kind of get your fingerprints on maybe later on as, as the world opens up beyond, I guess, those those kind of sitcom parameters? Well, there's always something hiding under the surface in WandaVision, which is threatening to sort of creep its way in. Sometimes we call them twilight zone moments or, or get out moments where you, you set that these people uh, around Wanda are all sort of, you know, doing things against their will slightly, or that you sense the, the lake of trauma that's kind of bubbling up underneath. And so finding that balance between the authentic recreation of sitcom and where Wanda's, you know, heading in the story was one of the great sort of stylistic opportunities that I had in the show. And also, you know, we weren't just recreating exactly how shows were done. There was always a tension between, you know, the Marvel universe kind of finding its way into the sitcom reality. So it really was a great opportunity as a director to play around with styles and to throw it all into the, the pot and mix it up, you know, and add different spices 
and, and, and ingredients and sort of see what we could create. And then, of course, once you get into the, the universe outside of Westview, you know, then you are in more of a traditional Marvel universe. But even then, we wanted to give it our own spin um, and make sure that uh, there was a real tension between what's happening outside, um, which is more real and grounded and muddy and rainy, and inside, where it's the sitcom reality, where it's 70 degrees and clear skies and, you know, all the time, you know. And so you really knew kind of how do you understand where you are? You're in the sitcom world, you're in the real world. Um, and what happens when those, when the sort of, you know, the the barrier between those two starts to break down? Uh, what does that look like? Um, and so we had a great deal of fun playing with aspect ratios and filters and all the sort of tricks of the trade playing around with form because playing around with form ultimately was playing around with narrative. It was a way to tell a story about what was really happening. What was your reaction when you were watching the fans react to those first few episodes and and not getting the Marvel series they might have initially anticipated? You know, you can't please everybody. Um, And I think hopefully people hung around long enough to realize that maybe the thing they thought they were missing was was there the whole time. Uh, But what was really special about WandaVision is that I heard stories, uh, many stories like this, where grandparents and grandkids gathered around the TV on Friday night to watch it together. And that's really special, especially, uh, you know, at the time we were all going through and the world is under lockdown. But you have grandparents able to explain to grandkids who Dick Van Dyke was. You have grandkids in exchange being able to say, well, this, this is what the Avengers is all about. You know, and so sitcoms, which were always about families coming together, you know, around the hearth, in the home, watching television together is exactly what was happening in a meta way in the world around the show. So even though you might have thought that the Venn diagram of old television and Marvel fans was a very slender overlap. I think it turned out to be maybe bigger than even I realized. Um, but you know, it's it's great that something can kind of bring generations together. And I think I think Marvel's been doing that for years, but maybe this show in particular, because of its deep dive into the history of TV, had an opportunity to do it in a more pronounced way. And I mean, going back through your your career, I mean, you've worked on some amazing shows, and and I guess most recently the one that stood out was obviously Game of Thrones that you worked on. So going from Game of Thrones to a Marvel series is must be was it was that quite a leap or what's the technical challenge of, of making a Marvel series when everyone has seen it on the big screen and and you have to come in and, and try and replicate that perhaps on a smaller budget or certainly a smaller screen how how do you manage that with maybe more restrictions or or did you have the freedom of a, a cinematic budget to, to make WandaVision? Game of Thrones is a really good a really good parallel example because I think Game of Thrones offered something truly cinematic on the television and it was an opportunity when I worked on Game of Thrones to dream big in a way that I hadn't been able to dream in television up to that point to have the resources to bring it to life. But still, the budget of a of a, an hour of Game of Thrones pales in comparison to an hour of an Avengers movie in terms of budget. So there is definitely a scale difference. And we were doing you know six hours of a Marvel show, whereas you know um, an Avengers film will only be two hours and change. So there definitely was a scale difference. I will say though that Marvel is an incredibly wonderful place to work and very supportive, and they want to deliver something that felt like a continuation of the brand that they'd built in the movie theater. So I always felt supported by them and we we did the best we could. But of course, filmmaking, I think even at, at the highest studio level, you always feel like you never have enough money, right? I think I read some interview about how they ran out of money on a Harry Potter and they had to change over a set into Dumbledore's office because they didn't have money to build a Dumbledore's office. So, you know, so even Harry Potter, you run out of money at some point. So you always have to fall back on, on being clever and, and trying to make things work. And 
we definitely had lots of those moments and we had built, we had designed sets uh, that we could never build or afford to build, like where Vision's getting disassembled at S.W.O.R.D. headquarters, you know, in this operating theater was something we couldn't afford to build. So we went and found this amazing old building in Atlanta that had an open courtyard and we turned it into that operating theater. And, and it's one of my favorite sets in the whole show. And I think even at, at big levels of filmmaking, when you can feel like you're making an indie film or student film or those things you made as a kid on your camcorder at home, it's it's when you really feel the joy of filmmaking. Sometimes it's more fun to have limitations. And 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 I mean, what was it like uh, working with? We should mention Elizabeth Olsen and, and Paul Bettany. What was it like working with them and and coming into an environment where the actors know their characters perhaps better than than you might have done coming in to work with them? What was that collaborative process like to make sure that you both got the best out of each other? And and I guess towards the end, spoiler alert, you know, you worked with two Paul Bettanys. So um, you know, how how was that for you working with them? Because obviously, they, you know, they're big names and people expect a lot from their characters by now. They're terrific. I mean, they're they're they were such wonderful partners and collaborators. They're fearless. They're willing to take incredible risks. Um, and you're taking two actors who you know, have, like you said, established these really great characters over a series of films and you're putting them in a completely new environment. All of a sudden they're they're in a 50s sitcom or a 60s or a 70s, they're wearing bell bottoms and sideburns. They're and and there was a lot of risk to be to be taken there. And uh the the opportunity to feel silly was there every day. But they are so smart and so well prepared and so playful that we had the best time. And we I'm a theater director originally and still am and I I love rehearsal and we had a great time getting together to kind of rehearse and build this world together. And yeah, they're fierce protectors of who those characters are, but they also are so excited in where those characters are going and working hand in hand with Jack and me to kind of figure out where where that world was was going. So it was a collaborative environment the whole time, but a really fun one. And I have to say this show was one of the best experiences I've ever had as a director, just working with this team and also being able to do such different stuff. You know, you're never coming back to the same thing. It was, you know, you're doing a witch's coven and old Salem one day and you're doing a live show in front of an audience or 50 sitcom the next so it was a lot of fun for all of us to kind of continually adjust to the new challenges and and i mean just you know with the new streaming platforms that are coming through with, with disney plus you know more than rivaling netflix and amazon now i mean how do you from a creative point of view i mean how do you just see the landscape at the moment i mean it seems there's more tv even in a pandemic there seems there's no end of, of tv being produced and and developed and and now thankfully that we're all being allowed out again we're still kept indoors because there's so much good tv to watch I mean, how do you just see it from a directing point of view and, and the opportunities and challenges that are out there now for, for writers, directors, actors to, to tell stories? It's a great time for storytelling because things are changing. We don't know um, how well the theatrical release will bounce back post-pandemic. I love going to the movie theater. I'll be back to the to the see movies in the movie theater. But will it be the same as before the pandemic? I don't know. Streaming has certainly taken over from, from so much of the other sort of ways to watch television at home. And it's led to some things which I think are really um, wonderful innovations, like the rise of limited series, things like The Queen's Gambit, thing where you can invest in characters for six, seven, eight episodes. Uh, you don't have to do all the shortcuts in a movie. You know, you don't have to kind of jump through things and, and establish what you need to establish. You can get your plot going in a limited series. You can take that little extra time for the character moments, but still deliver wonderfully big set pieces. So personally, for me, that feels like reading a great book. And now movies almost feel a little too fast. And yet at the same time, I, I, I can't imagine watching 22 episodes 
of a show for an entire season either. That feels like too much. So maybe we're finally um, settling in on what the proper format is for our narrative, um, or at least for the moment. That seems like six to eight episodes is a pretty perfect way to digest something. Matt Shackman speaking with Michael Picard. The Legacy of Black Wall Street is a two-part special released earlier this month in the US through OWN, Oprah Winfrey Network, telling the story of the rise of Oklahoma's Greenwood District up until its destruction a hundred years ago in the Tulsa Race Massacre. Director Deborah Riley Draper and Ashley D. Tonto from producer Trailblazer Studios spoke to Clive Whittingham about the documentary how the project was overlooked by TV networks prior to last year's rise of the Black Lives Matter movement and how the positive moves the industry's made since can become permanent reforms. For those that aren't familiar with uh, with Trailblazer yet, who wants to give me the skinny, maybe Ashley, just a little bit about the company and what it's known for, programs you guys have worked on, where people might have seen your work? Sure. Trailblazer Studios is celebrating its 20th anniversary this December. Based in North Carolina, it's a 20,000 square foot facility. We have a soundstage, production offices, edit suite, um, and we're kind of a one-stop shop. We do everything from development to production to post to finishing. We started out in the reality world. Um, one of our first clients was Figure Eight, and we've done over a thousand hours of programming over the last 20 years, but a lot of that came from Figure Eight and their uh, series. But beyond that, we've also done feature docs and kind of got our big turning point in our Emmy award-winning documentary, Twice Born. Um, and from there, I've done work for Amazon and Netflix and PBS, um, HBO, just sort of run the gamut, but all in the unscripted world. The reason we've come together to, to talk today primarily is about the legacy of Black Wall Street, which uh, premiered on uh, OWN at the start of the month and is now streaming on the, the fancy new Discovery Plus uh, streaming service. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the project and the uh, the origins of it, how it came about? So this is a project that started way back in 2019 for Trailblazer. We went out to Tulsa and met with the Greenwood Cultural Center and the Centennial Commission and kind of got that mind-blowing history lesson and felt it was a really important story that needed to be told that they felt needed to be told and we developed it and went out with it and pitched it and at the time it was still a small story that was a bit hard to sell which I think the other documentaries in this space also agree with they you know had also been out since 2017 or 18 and then the world kind of changed in May of 2020 with George Floyd and thankfully so all of uh, the different Tulsa docs kind of got their home and a place to share the story um, and as we always say I think you know 11,000 people live there. It was a hundred years ago and there's not enough documentaries to cover all of the story that that Black Wall Street and massacre could tell. So for this particular point of view, you know, we really wanted to tell the story of the origins and of the people who created Black Wall Street and the massacre, although important, was not the focal point for us. And I didn't even really understand what that pitch meant until Deborah took it and turned it into this amazing story. And so, so grateful that Deborah came on and put her own twist and focus on it. You know, for me, it was really amazing to work with Ashley on this project. I grew up in a place outside of Savannah, about eight miles outside of Savannah, called Coffee Bluff, which is actually what my company is called, Coffee Bluff. Um, in Coffee Bluff, this was an ex-enslaved community. So starting in 1827, African-Americans who had been enslaved on the Jacob Wahlberg plantation left that plantation and found a better life for themselves in Coffee Bluff 
right alongside the Coffee Bluff River. So that's where Coffee Bluff is. And it's this beautiful community. And uh, when the Federal Writers Project wrote about it um, in the 1930s, they called it a sleepy little Negro community filled with fishermen, which it was. My grandfather was a fisherman. My great grandfather was a fisherman. We all love water. We all love boats and we all love fish. But what really connected me to the story was the fact that this could have been my great grandparents community. They were a thriving black community, just like Greenwood was. So I wouldn't want them redacted to just a community. I would want people to know names and individual stories and individual people. And I would want to be able to speak on their behalf if they couldn't speak on their own behalf. So the idea of bringing to life individuals from Greenwood so you could truly understand the legacy of Black Wall Street was incredibly important to me. Um, I really wanted to make sure that we put faces with names and we say the names and we know the names and we know the people and we know exactly the extraordinary efforts that took them to get to Oklahoma, the extraordinary efforts it took them to conceive and build Greenwood, and then the legacy of the people that live on with their memory, the generational trauma that they live with, and the inspiration to continue the dream and forge ahead and always be that intrepid pioneer that their ancestors were. There are a few projects around this, around the, around the anniversary. What would you say sets yours apart? What's the, what's the USP of, of your project? I think it's literally the humanity within the descendants and the survivors, that is the unique selling proposition. To be able to hear a name, know a name, to see A.J. Smitherman, but also see A.J. Smitherman's great-great-granddaughter. So she is him. She is her legacy. We literally see the blood run through the story and run through the veins of the survivors and their descendants. So I think that is it. I also think it's this idea of ensuring that the massacre is not a faceless seminal event, but that we really look at what can be learned from Black Wall Street, the cooperative economics, the idea of building a community, the idea of really creating space for people to feel safe and for them to actually enjoy living. I also That's think it. something that was important to Deborah that we, you know, discovered in our research in our two weeks writer's room, which turned into really two weeks of like diving into this world, which I had never done. And that's something that Deborah, you know, I think is unique to her process. But knowing that we wanted to share the humanity, it was also sharing their actual words. And so I think Deborah making sure that we found newspaper articles, letters, poems, books, whatever we could find that were the actual words of these people, and then letting their descendants say them. I think that's something that's unique to ours as well. I was most touched by were words. Obviously, as a writer, words excite me. So seeing words written 100 years ago and then coming to the realization that those words are still relevant, coming to the realization that those words are as powerful today as they were 100 years ago, and that the spirit of those words still encapsulate the African-American lived experience in America is both extraordinary and maddening um, in so many ways. And being able to show those words, the ones in poetry, the ones in newspaper articles, the ones in letters, really, I think for Ashley and I, <laughs> during the development process, we would always get so excited. We've got a letter. We've got a poem. And what and I think what the excitement was is really about that meant we connected to that person. So if we are reading AJ's words, we're inside his head for that brief moment. So that makes the story very personal. It makes the story very intimate. It makes the story very authentic. Do you think this project would have been picked up six 
seven years ago. Television doesn't have a great reputation um, when it comes to to diversity. It says and has made a big point, like we say, over the over the last year since since the death of George Floyd, that it is changing and it wants diversity of voice. Do you think this project would have been picked up five or six years ago? And do you think there is genuine change coming in the industry, opening the door for more projects like this? Um, I can tell you that I know for a fact that it wouldn't. I think there was um, a PBS doc that kind of touched upon it, but I can tell you that six months before that it normally would have sold, it wouldn't have because I tried. And I know that the others tried. They were out pitching in 2017, 2018. um, And I was out pitching in April of 2020 and got all passes. Other than, I will say, other than Own, who I hadn't pitched yet. And much to Robin Lattaker Johnson's credit, she really championed our version of it because she had heard all of them, as you can imagine, Oprah's network would. And, you know, that meant a lot to us that she saw the vision that we had and let us run with it. But no, I, I think the world has changed quite a bit, thankfully, but I can tell you it wouldn't. And I can tell you all the reasons why it wouldn't, but I won't name names. <laughs> I think it's an evolution. And television is simply a microcosm of the world. The world has greater expectations of platforms, of media, of writers, of directors, of filmmakers, of newspapers, of magazines, of everyone. People are looking for access to information. They're looking for equity. They're looking for parity. And as people who work in the media, we have a responsibility to deliver that. And we also have a responsibility to tell the people that we work with, you should be delivering that. You know, so, you know, what actually did was a really hard job to sell historical doc about something that happened 100 years ago that people wanted covered up. So it's it's not, you know, the, these stories of the African-American lived experience in America are hard to sell sometimes. They're tough, but they're important and they're necessary. And it requires all of us to champion the voices. And I think that's why we wanted to hear their words and their voices, because we wanted to amplify their words and their voices and champion their story, because that's a part of our, our, our mission as filmmakers. Are you confident that it is an evolution and it will continue to move in that direction? Or do you feel that it may be a trend because television is is also an industry driven by trends and maybe 18 months from now the trend will be different and and well it'll have gone back to its bad old ways do you think it genuinely is an evolution moving in that direction i think that it is a, an evolution i think people are taking notice and accountability for those who don't know nat geo announced that all of their programs behind the scene and on camera have to have an amount of marginalized people involved in order to get produced to get commissioned and i think that's I got goosebumps when I read that this morning. That's incredible. And I hope that they are the leaders in that and that everybody follows suit because that will in turn change the programming decisions. That means that when you're pitching an all white room about a small story from a hundred years ago of a black community, um, instead, hopefully the people in that room will change the people who are pitching will change. And I do think that it, I hope it's not a trend and that all of this is just the, the beginning of a landslide. I, I do too. I think, you know, 400 plus years ago, the lived experience of African-Americans were different. So we've evolved to a place where where we can have a conversation and all three of our voices are equal and not mitigated, you know, in some way the the light shut out um, because of race or gender, right? So the evolutions are never fast. Evolutions are slow. An evolutionary process is slow and often painful, um, but definitely change is a metamorphosis. These things take time. And I do hope that the evolution will be thoughtful and conscious and amazingly inclusive. And then that will keep it from going backwards, right? So when when change happens, 
and change happens in a big splashy way and the underpinnings of the change aren't truly inclusive and aren't truly considered and regarded as important, then anything can happen. I guess the audience is going to drive this as as well because the audience is not going to um, is not going to engage with companies that that don't go with this. I've said Channel Five on this side of the pond have also said no diversity, no commission. They've gone really strict with it. I guess it's a matter of survival for these companies, right? Because the audience is just in this day and age now. You would hope is not going to engage with companies that don't go with this. Who wants to spend money with people that don't like them? <laughs> it's simple, right? <laughs> You know, there's not like a lot of magic to it. It's like support the people that support you and invest in them and nurture them and ensure that partnerships like mine and Ashley's are supported and celebrated. Right. And so that you see more of these cross-cultural partnerships where we share a great desire to tell a story and we love and appreciate each other's POV. And we want everyone else to have an ability and empathy and a desire to see the whole world right let me pick it away at a, a different strand of this trailblazer like you said at the start of the interview was more a sort of reality or what we would call factual entertainment company and has moved actually I, I think this was part of your remit when you arrived um was to, to revamp towards a, a premium dock output can you talk a little bit about the strategy why the company's going down that route and what it's doing to set itself apart in in what is it and a very buzzy and competitive part of the factual genre sure you know it's interesting I wish I could say that I consciously made that decision when I came on board, but I think it was twofold. I knew that they wanted to expand beyond kind of what they were known for because they were fully capable. Like I said, you know, the post-production and sound side had been doing premium for a while um, and produced beautiful work. One of those was Deborah's doc, American Pride, or Olympic Pride, American Prejudice. And so I knew that they were fully capable and it was just sort of on the development original side that we needed to put more focus into that. And it was something that I was passionate about, but it was always like one or two programs. But after Tulsa, actually, after becoming a mother and Tulsa, I felt there was just this innate passion to only work on things that made sense and that meant something and could make a difference and had some kind of purpose. But in our world, that's, you know, usually dirty words that nobody wants to hear. So it's figuring out how to package it in a way that sells it. And, you know, I call it chocolate covered broccoli. And so by without realizing it, my whole slate turned into this kind of chocolate covered broccoli. And that chocolate sometimes is a big splashy partnership like with Reuters, or it's turning something like climate change and adding a project with Fabian Cousteau and talking about tech and, you know, these big kind of projects like that. And so that it doesn't just seem like a whole earnest slate, but instead seems like these bigger projects and these bigger ideas. And they're really fun. They take a lot of time and a lot of patience and it's like pushing a boulder up a hill, but I truly love it. And I feel passionate about them. So I think the company appreciates the direction that I've taken us in. More than 10 years ago now, when I was interviewing um, buyers from factual channels at the time, you would always ask them what they wanted and they would give it the old, a good story is a good story. We would never rule anything out or in. But the one thing they always said that they didn't want was basically feature docs, premium docs. They said, we can't schedule them. We can't market them. There isn't an audience for them. They come and go. We don't, we won't do them. That's completely flipped around now. It's a real big trend in the industry for premium factual content, feature docs, things like that. Why has that happened? Is it simply a case of Netflix put it on and everybody watched it? Is it is it just 
a pure streamer effect. From your point of view, what has changed to, to spin that trend around so completely? I think it's a number of things. I think the fact that there was such an audience reaction to a lot of those documentaries and limited docs, especially on Netflix, and Netflix not having to worry about distribution so much. I think a lot of the response you were getting was like, I can't resell this. You know, it's a one-off. Nobody's going to buy that. Um, and that's where TV makes its money. But I think knowing that the audience has, you know, you have to get eyeballs to your network first. And that's the biggest thing right now. I mean, you have to be loud and splashy. You need Joe Exotic. You need Making a Murderer. You know, you need these loud things. And usually those stories aren't long lasting. They're limited. And so I think it's having a good balance. But yeah, there's a, a big appetite for it. And I'm so happy for that. And I think that's another reason the slate has gone that way, because there is an appetite for it now. And now people like Deborah can, you know, go and do TV and feature docs. It must be kind of a double-edged sword, both for a producer and and for you as, as well, Deborah, because with that, there are obviously more platforms for this to pitch to, which is great, but also a lot more competition. So how do you go about, not just with this project in particular, but how do you go about standing out and getting that green light with this increased competition? You know, I actually don't worry about the competition as much. I really worry about the story that I want to tell. And so far, I've selected stories that not a lot of other people have been telling. Um, I started out telling a story called Versailles 73, American Runway Revolution, about the Black models who uh, literally tore the roof off the Chateau de Versailles in 1973 in France and ushered in American Pret-a-Porter. That was the first feature doc for film about that moment. And now you see that exact same moment play out in the Halston limited series episodic. But on the nonfiction side, I was the first to bring that to market back in 2012 and talk about that particular event. So I think it's in the selection of the content that I want to make. Um, I tend to want to center my culture right, right in there and, and have a particular voice in doing it. And this is how my relationship with Trailblazer came to be. I, I decided that there was a part of the 1936 Summer Olympic Games that was missing. We all knew the story of Lenny Riefenstahl. People spoke about Adolf Hitler, you know, all of Jesse Owens' medals. But there was tremendous racial reckoning at the 1936 Olympics on the American side and on the German side. And there were 18 African-Americans on that American team that no one knew about. Um, because these stories are so marginalized, being able to open them up and unpack them through my own lens doesn't really stress me out about competition because I think everyone has their own creative envelope into a story and a way to unpack a seminal historical event because of my lived experience and the lived experiences of the people that I'm interested in brought a whole different perspective when we show that in Germany and around the world and it's currently streaming now. But people were like, wait, Jesse Owens wasn't the only Black person at the 1936 Olympics, I've seen four documentaries and two movies that say he was not true. And there were two Black women, the first two Black women in the history of the United States of America, Louise Stokes and Tidy Pickett. So that was the first time. And why this is extraordinary is that because of this documentary, the USOC then publicly recognized them. And we worked with um, one of the Olympic sponsors to bring these families who had been dismissed for 80 years to the White House to finally get recognition. That's the power of documentaries. And that's why I, I love being able to do this. And I don't worry about what someone else is doing. Uh, a documentary, a trailblazer documentary over over another company. Is there, is, have you got a USP, your company? You know, I think because 
this is a, a newer, I would say my slate as it is now. So maybe the world doesn't know this yet, but um, what I am really proud of is that we kind of put a twist on things. Um, what I was saying about, you know, chocolate and broccoli, but, you know, taking a, an idea, uh, whether it's an urban myth or maybe it's a true crime story and somehow twisting it into a format that can also talk about, you know, maternal mental health and making that sellable. Like, how do we talk about these bigger topics through this really interesting story and characters. And I think that is kind of what I hope becomes our DNA. We've come this far without talking about COVID. I presume some of this project was produced, shot in lockdown conditions. Can you talk to me a little bit about the challenges it's posed so far and still now moving forwards with new projects? What sort of challenges are you facing around COVID? How much extra time and budget is it adding? Are you avoiding international projects? Just talk to me about what you guys are facing with it. I think the first thing we did was really think about that was the second project I did during COVID. So I had this 40 page uh, COVID precautions guidelines document. So we knew how to move and how to navigate very safely at high cadence testing. Our COVID officer, as well as the nurse, as well as the test kits were on site every single day. Um, so that was not only reassure, reassuring to me, but to cast and crew as well. Plus it was a protective measure to just, before you could get on set, you had to take the test. You had to wait outside and hope that your test was not, you know, if your test was positive, you were going to get sent home. So letting everyone know before you um, take this project, you really need to ensure that you protect yourself if you want this job. And I think that was great. The, the tricky thing is, wow, so many things are closed. Uh, so many archive houses are closed. So many libraries are closed. So many universities were closed. I have like deep relationships with archivists around the world. They were not at work. So that made it hard. Things that were already digitized, that was great. But the good old fashioned microfiche that you may need that's at the library that's closed, that's when it became really, really difficult. But, you know, we turned up the search to find things in different ways. And the good news is it, it really helped us understand that at the end of the day, if you really have a great story and you have a really great project plan and you have a producer, because I would only call Ashley eight times a day, every day. So, um, so if you have a really great EP that is really supportive, you'll kind of put your heads together and figure out how to navigate this because films were made during war. Films were made during the pandemic in 1918. So if those filmmakers were able to make films 100 years ago, we should be able to capture what they did and tell it 100 years later in the safest, most creative, and most passionate way we could. So, you know, the closure, certainly problematic travel was difficult. We didn't obviously have the level of access to the types of flights. And I live in Atlanta. So, you you know, that's the busiest airport in the world. And still we were limited on flights. And at the same time, I'm so grateful because we had a crew that was ready to rock. They're like, we're with you, Deb. We're going to do this. Just tell us what to do. So um, I'm grateful. My DP on the Legacy of Black Wall Street has been my DP for 10 plus years. So, you know, I made the phone call like, this is where we're going. This is what we're going to do. Can you roll? Absolutely. Uh, just book a flight and off we went. And I think that intrepid spirit and that dedication and that commitment to telling this story was just running like an engine inside of us because you're talking about a community 
that was massacred. And how dare we not tell the story? Ashley, how much extra time and budget is this adding to projects in general? And who's picking that tab up? Because the profit margin on productions was tight enough anyway, wasn't it? So who's who's actually picking the, the cost of all this extra stuff up? Thankfully, the, the networks already have like a chunk of money that they put aside just for COVID precautions. So you send them a budget and then they add on like, I think it's like 30 grand sometimes. And that's just for the tests. And if any kind of quarantine time was needed, you had to account for that. You know, even if it was extra driving, I think we are hopefully past that big hump of having to do a lot of that on production. So it's not as bad as it was. And I don't know how long the networks are going to account for COVID testing. We'll see, um, I guess, just how things go. I, I don't think anybody can predict anything, you know, what, what changes now that the world's opening back up. But um, yeah, I think it was a short amount of time and it definitely added more production days and more budget, but we're not considering that for future productions. Deborah Riley Draper and Ashley DeTonto speaking with Clive Whittingham. That's all for this episode, but there'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.